0: A History of Life Sound, with Chris Snow. Not many people get to go by one name. But in Manchester, there is only one Bruce in the music business. Mr Manchester, Bruce Mitchell, ran a jazz club as a teenager, saw Bill Haley and the Comets at Manchester Odeon in 1957 gigged at all three versions of the Cavern Club, before and after the Beatles were there, and played drums in Alberto y e Los Trios Paranoias. He supported, or was supported, by Pink Floyd, Hawkwind, The Who, The Police, The Stranglers and Blondie. The night John Lennon was assassinated, Bruce was performing the Alberto's musical, Sleek, across the road. John had been due to watch the show later in the week the story being about a singer who dies, the musical inevitably closed shortly afterwards. He has performed in and co-managed the Durity column for 40 years and was a key figure in Factory Records history. In the interview, he sometimes refers to Wilson, who is his friend Tony Wilson. For 40 years or so, he has also been running his company, Manchester Light and Stage, providing stage, sound, lighting or production management for New Order, the Stone Roses and any other Manchester band that comes to mind. If you have performed at or attended a gig in Manchester in the last 50 years, the chances are good that Bruce had a hand in it somewhere. Up until 2020, he was a regular presence at club nights, gigs and festival sites, and probably will be again in years to come. If you meet an 80-year-old dressed in a smart suit with a hat and monocle, riding a Brompton bike round a festival, then you have met Bruce. We recorded this in Bruce's outdoor courtyard in the summer, so you will hear a few background noises. I'd love to know a bit about those sort of very early days of concerts, you know, of when rock and roll and then... The well, there was
1: music before rock and roll.
0: <laughs> when maybe youth culture was... I mean, I suppose people, kids danced to jazz before rock and roll. I we guess. didn't
1: know about youth culture until Tot Wilson uh, branded it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so were you always a musician from an early age, or was there a moment where you went to see some people play
1: and you thought that's what I want to do you My and father was um, uh, he was uh, a teacher an assistant headmaster he was a string bass player and drummer and he would provide uh, bands for functions um, like weddings hotel gigs bar mitzvahs and he would play he is his music was the music that I listened to and my music partner Vin Riley was was similar insofar as our fathers infected us with a passion for music and the the most passionate music is that that you come to in maybe your early teenage years, and I suppose that was how it was for me um, the passion and heat that fell for my heroes um, would override critical attention to their sound systems because those musicians in Manchester, they would be doing the Free Trade Hall or an Apollo or the Bellevue Hall. The Bellevue Hall was quite a big one, you know, 5,000 people. And the music you would go to see would be... Uh, first was that... You'd go to the King's Hall, Free Trade Hall, maybe the Apollo, the Ritz, who had a, a big house band. <laughs> but I was passionate about West Coast jazz instrumentalists and I would play my father's records at home and play bongos to them when me, uh mum and dad weren't there. My father had quite a big sound system for the music, and I would uh, put my head in, in the speakers in the same way that heavy metal fans, you put their heads in the sub-bass. Uh, I, I, I've, never, I've never misunderstood, I've always understood, the, why you want to be in the music that far. Mm. And, of course, if you're, if you're in a band... And being a drummer is the was was the easiest entry point. Being inside the music, that's being in it somewhere, is the thing that feeds you and drives you along. If you saw Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington or any of those artists, the in Bellevue in the big hall, it would be a house system, Mm. and the show that those guys used to deliver, they could deliver it possibly with megaphones. It would be the fine... Especially with Louis Armstrong, it was a very finely tuned, almost a cabaret show, but with musicians that were the heroes. Mm. So they Uh, they
0: transcended the limitations of the the concert
1: hall? Oh, oh, yes. I would say that's a good good version of it. And I didn't realise how... It worked with an audience until I saw a Ravi Shankar gig at the Free Trade Hall, and there was no amplification whatsoever. And an audience, that's when I realised that an audience would go right down to it. They would pause breathing (laughs) uh, to listen and follow the lines of a a musician like that. It was almost like magnetic. It had a magnetic draw on your ears. That That was me... That was my theory. <laughs> and occasionally I would buy bootlegs of some of my favourite musicians. Like, my first bootleg was Jerry Mulligan's quartet at the Free Trade Hall, maybe, like, 56. And maybe in 56 I also uh, saw Bill Bill Haley at the Odeon doing the Use in the House system. And I just remember that, that gig has been a very loud gig but it was only as loud as the house system. And it was a wow gig, uh, an an audience that made the balcony move up and down. So that's the way I think uh, audiences go to music very often. Uh, Later on, many years down the line, there is a lot of criticism about a bad sounding gig, Mm. but it's, it's not always objective. The thing is when you 're really keen it 's hard to be disappointed in going to see your favorite artist or your favorite band on the stage. you 're just thrilled to be there, yeah. you know, uh, in my case, sometimes it was enough just to be under the same roof as, as those as the, as the musicians yeah. and i 've never lost that um, feeling about the way people go and see live music, and when sound is very good in a room, it's very often a surprise. (laughs) Uh, I'm just thinking of, because I've been involved in most gigs in difficult rooms. Manchester Cathedral is uh, possibly one of the worst, but Mm. go and see a gig there where they've got the proper idea, usually to put a lot of little boxes around rather than have any big bottom end bass rolling about. I've noticed that on maybe two or three occasions, and it's always been a very expensive PA firm with lots of experience who'd maybe investigated the space before. Yeah, It's a, it's a, a church with a very wide aisle. Uh, and bad sound uh, obviously can upset you, especially if you pay paying a big ticket. But it's a revelation for me a lot of the time. An act that, that are just going to drive the gig along, whether it's right or not, that, that energy very often sells the gig rather than getting... And no band hardly ever leaves the stage satisfied with what they've done because they're artists. <laughs> uh, and they've always got a best friend, especially on the younger end of the scale, young bands that have just broken they've got best friends that help carry the gear in and they realise these best friends that help they realise part of the insider thing about being keen on music and having friends is you go backstage and you always say oh, Bear was crap tonight (laughs) and there's no objectivity about it they just realise that's
0: one of the things they've got to trot out (laughs) when I was sort of Doing a bit of historical research, I read about the famous Bob Dylan gig at the Free Trade Hall where someone shouted "Judas," mm. and they even and know who it was. <laughs> well, they, it was they, Chris, Chris Denton, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I saw an interview. I'm not sure it was Mick Ronson, but it was one one. Must have I mean Stuart McConey tracked tracked down yeah. the, the person and. And they said, Oh well we weren't particularly annoyed that he was playing electric guitar. We were annoyed because he brought over a big PA system from the United States. And it was advertised that he had this, he'd flown in his special PA system. Oh, whoa, American Act did did used to do that. And the first half of the show was acoustic, and they said it it sounded great. And the second half of the show, it was muddy, and it was so we couldn't hear anything. Not a good
1: room to do, really. And
0: so he was so annoyed. That room wasn't designed for that. Yeah, yeah. But everyone thought it was because he didn't like Bob Dylan having electric guitar. He was like, oh, no, no, the, the songs are great, I just couldn't hear anything.
1: This is yet another take on a Center incident. Uh, C.P. Lee has, has done a whole book on it, you know. <laughs> and the stories are better than what the real life <laughs> a, a lot of time. But the American PA idea, or the the Attitude Touring American Bands, I remembered our firm used to take care of the uh, Free Trade Hall gigs and the Harvey Goldsmith gigs. There was... One particular gig, I think it was the Warner Brothers Music Show, where for two or three days, they had a bill of... Doobie Brothers were top of the bill on one of them. Little Feet was a support. And when that team arrived to do the gig, it was all all American. Mm. But they didn't use an American PA. They brought over a very nice American monitor system and their own desk, which... That was a habit to, to deal with when you had the budget to do it. And they'd they'd use a European or an English front-of-house PA. And the Americans nearly always chose the best PA firms operating in England. They usually were based in London. And the, the guy that was running the thing for the doobies... Was this enormous Texan called Chuck, and he was like, I don't know, six foot five or six foot six, and he was fine. Uh, and he gets he gets his set up for the sound check, and the old owner of the English PA film was was sat there uh, while they're doing the sa- starting the sound checks, and Big Chuck, in being sort of almost bombastic <laughs> American. He's saying to the the owner of the English PA firm, Hey, Chris, this, it sounds so good. I don't think I need the front-of-house stuff. (laughs) And the English PA boss said, Really? Oh, that'd be dope. Can I rip it out and get it over to London? (laughs) And all of a sudden, Chuck got frightened that it was somebody taking him at his word. He wanted to just big up his monitor system. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he was getting this reaction, oh, wait a minute, maybe I've gone too far. <laughs> and it was... Uh, Step back. No, and the, the, the guy that had been doing it for a long time, doing doing the front of house, he was fine
0: either way. <laughs> so from playing in bands when you were younger, did you... Did you buy some equipment for the band, which you then thought, "Oh, I could rent this?" I house. go
1: I go further back than that. You said, because my passion was for uh, jazz instrumentalists. I started a club in an upstairs room of a pub in Manchester called the Thatched House, and I might have called it Modern Jazz at the Upstairs because it was a such a club in New York. I might call Modern Jazz at the Thatched House. You know, because modern jazz was so new and f- fantastic, and it was all those those very young musicians. Th- they were like pop stars because uh, their music uh, sold. It was the hot music of the time. Uh, my father had a he had a PA box and a microphone, and some and maybe a seducer that went on his string bass. But I was to pinch his. Uh, I think it was a Gauss speaker or a JBL, and set up my club gig and I would put the the one PA box on top of the upright piano that was staged left. Uh, and the microphone was just used for announcements and for the soloist to and that, that was it, one microphone in a room. And that was the first PA thing that I dealt with. And I could also put uh, a record player through it for music when there wasn't uh, a band on, and that's 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 how it started really. And I was I was really a promoter, mm. but because I was promoting, the the instrumentalists would be backed by a local band of musicians. And every now and again, uh, if I hadn't booked a drummer, I booked me, and I became the drummer in it. It was. Uh, you know, I own the stall, so I uh, <laughs> yes. I put myself in the...
0: in the shop window from time to time.
1: Well, more more to do with I, I wanted to play the drums. That's why I was uh, doing all this. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to be in the in the music. So the the technical aspect of this <laughs> PA guy <laughs> is you start, and then uh, when I was touring uh, with groups because. Modern jazz and th- those bands were my passion but the the band that you would get a job as a drummer in were trad bands because they sold out venues and they could almost operate the gig without PA and if they did have a, a PA it was one mic at the front mm. uh, and possibly they might put a mic to the piano but uh, I didn't see that that often because they just used to doing an acoustic gig, and and that instrumentation that they had, you know, it was drums, bass, banjo, or drums, bass, piano, banjo, and then a, th- a three-horn front line. That would make a lot of noise and be good enough to um, overwhelm the audience, even if they didn't have a PA. And that was the, the driving music of the time. Like when the Cavern started, Liverpool Cavern started as a a modern jazz venue. Then it had to bend to put inappropriate music on, and it was trad bands, because they could sell them out. And then there was a turning point, because when I... I remember working the Liverpool Cavern uh, in a trad band, and the support band was a Liverpool beat group, as they called them. Within nine months of that gig, the beat groups were top of the bill, and the trad bands were just the openers.
0: Because
1: uh, yeah. I, I would just change. Are you uh, a beat group drummer? Yeah, I'm, that's me. <laughs> so I did that. Uh, and if you, if you look at chronology for mm. the way you call it youth culture was operating, it's just music following, following up times of people's age and enthusiasms. Mm. There's nothing more enthusiastic than a music, music fan, and as they grow older, they stick to their music usually don 't they yes, yes. and explaining to you how no, they don 't write songs like that anymore, because they're boring bastards <laughs> and, it, and it goes on and, and adds and as the uh, the groups you know, like I, I was traveling in a, uh, a couple of groups, and we would carry charlie watkins Wem columns, one stage left, one stage right and you could pair them as you got enough money to add, add stuff and WEM uh, amplifiers WEM also made a, the first echo machine I think they made a, a WEM copy
0: oh,
1: copycats. WEM copycat and I think Vin had one of those when he first started playing and also there was a fashion thing if you are in a band you wanted the black cabinet with the, the in red W E M. You know, that's part of the image. Uh, you also had to have, not really relevant to the equipment, but you also had to have the latest uh, transit van. Uh, and of course, they had long wheelbase ones as your band got bigger. The attitude, the whole attitude built round young musicians, had a a fashion. Uh, Surround to it, really uh, uh, Northwest bands I might digress here, but <laughs> Northwest bands They would own a, a, a transit They would own A WEM PA system And They would have combos That were appropriate, like AC30s And Marshall bass cabs And they would ha- also have a transit And <laughs> And it was important for your transit, if you could afford it, to be souped up. So, because it was a regular race up and down the M1. And, <laughs> uh, <and> Post-gig race. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, and, and, and if you had a, you rode it, you, you'd want somebody that could get the gear in and out for you, but can also drive the van and soup it up to go faster than other because there was, you know, regular group races. But up in Liverpool, trust the Scousers for this, uh, after gigs round the North West, they nearly all used to drive over to Formby Beach, or Southport, get a fire going at, like, one in the morning, and they would get microphone stands like these in front of me now, and they would thwack each other's vans (laughs) to... And the, the, the van that ended up with the most dents in it over, over the months and over the succeeding period, it, they looked like warrior stains, uh, warrior <laughs> damage. That was a part of the, the energy of that sort of driving youth. If you ever did a gig in the Liverpool cabin and the escorts were on, you had to watch them because you'd have all your... All the gear would be, you know, that'd be three or four bands per night you'd have your drum kits set up there, you had the combos, and there would be sometimes four or five drum kits. <laughs> this crap called Paul, who was the drummer in the escorts, would come in uh, when nobody around and piss all over the kits that weren't his. <laughs> and, it, and it was all part of the, uh, this whole thing, which has got nothing to do with music. It's, <laughs> it's got a lot to do with the um, attitude. <laughs> the attitude. I'm trying to think of a this is a better word than maybe the attitude. Uh, and it was it'd be saluted. Uh, and then the, the equipment was always a moving feast as it were. The mm. guitar players would be uprating their instrumentation, you know, for first of all they want to get the sound right and sometimes the sound right to them is what they'd seen better known musicians using. Uh, and I was just thinking about talking about those WEM <coughs> PA speakers I was in a, the Victor Brock Blues trains and they we were touring act and we had an orange PA system and it was it was clad in orange still running now aren't they yeah, oh yes, yeah. uh, and <coughs> we had that and you would travel to gigs in your van and it was a van and You'd get everything in it and uh, we remember the, these orange PA speakers because Victor, for some strange reason, would always elect to be the last man in to, to lie on top of the, uh, the speakers because that was uh, all the room was that left. was left. <laughs> yeah. it was, it maybe he was being uh, a martyr to his cause. But I'd forgotten, you know, until you remind him, I, I'd forgotten about how, as musicians, you get to gigs and do your own... If you had a road, eh? he always had another job, which was, like, maybe a driver. And a lot of time, you didn't even have a road. you just carry all your gig and your, your stuff in yourself. And the downside of that was if you had uh, a Hammond C3, a Hammond C3 is a, a, a big double-manual um, organ, and it's also got foot pedals... And carrying this into a gig was hard. And John Mayall came up with this, you know, being a practical person, <coughs> John Mayall came up with this this thing that everybody adopted later on, is where you could saw the instrument in half to make it more manageable. You, you know, you saw the cabinet at one particular picture. You got two equal halves that you could just put in and can connect two leads, and it it was whole again. But uh, I know there's a band called the St. Louis Union that had a couple of hits in the very early 60s. Um, Dave Formula uh, was the organ player. And he very often knew to go missing when it was being carried, in and carried <laughs> out. There was lots of that politics about how people did stuff. Um, and he was in the St. Louis Union. And, and the bass player lives down the road here. And he, he was mention this Dave Tomlinson or Dave Formula as he's called would uh, make an argument against that but I'm pretty sure I've got evidence even if it's but lots of people did that and that's how this gang of musicians would sometimes fall out not on the song but on the, the partition of work <laughs> uh, obviously the singer didn't care anything did they of course not now you see you, you've been brought up in a, a time where you had one particular job to do and that's get the sound right
0: well the other one was that the drum would have a few drinks during the evening and then he didn't need to go to the toilet just whilst all the drums were being carried out to the venue right because the drums were always the the, well, they the, the last thing the, out they weren't the bulkiest thing but there was lots of There's Lots lots of cases.
1: Yeah, if you you had what they call the show kit, yeah, (laughs) there's lots of boxes. (laughs) Yes, no trap kit here. Yeah,
0: yeah, it'd always be like, oh, the the drummer's disappeared. Oh yeah, he uh, he had to go to the toilet. Oh, his his girlfriend's, his mum's come to see the show. Yeah, (laughs) so
1: you can see that this would create tensions that could break the break up the camaraderie of a a, a band because the first. The first glue in, in a lot of the groups was their camaraderie. And uh, you've got to remember, were, uh, in, in the very early 60s, there was lots of groups <coughs> that were formed of pals in engineering works. And they would be working the same thing. One might play a bit of guitar. So they would put a band together. And because they all had proper wages, they would buy... The best equipment, the best vans, and they would rehearse songs uh, at night and they would buy great suits, usually in the style being displayed by Merseybeat bands. And they were driven by the fact they just wanted to be up there doing it. And mm. obviously they weren't making money, but it was their hobby. So you had, you had such a lot of bands that roamed about <laughs> the, the country.
0: One person told me that's because every band had their own PA system, yeah. they'd all, at large gigs there'd be a rivalry between the PA systems that they own. So the Who would turn up and they'd put their PA system on the stage and then behind it, Pink Floyd or whoever the next band was would line up their PA system. When the Who had finished, they'd take their gear off and then Pink Floyd yeah. would go, now you're going to hear... Our complete show with our complete gear. Well,
1: I, I, I know some of these people, but it was often, in the history of it,
0: mm.
1: quite a lot of musicians blamed Pete Townsend because Pete Townsend had a real sense of wanting to give stuff to the audience. He wanted to give them value added. And The who the first, first one to start carrying a PA system around because he wanted to get the sound as close to the records in the live gigs. And so he was buying PA, employing people to run it, and there was one cadet, I think his name was uh, John Wolfe, who uh, Townsend outsourced the job to. And this I think it was John Wolfe, and he would put up good boxes and good stuff, and the Pink Floyd stuff at the time wasn't that sort of sonic quality because they could get away with... What they were doing in the early days <laughs> that you could get away with uh, creating this massive sound, but as part of this progress, driven along by the Who, and some, resented by some of the other bands because they had to follow suit. The you Who had
0: stepped back once it, that Pandora's yeah. box had been opened.
1: And then also it was the Who that first started putting theatrical lighting in their gigs, and John Wolf ran that as well. And then later they were—I think—they were the first band to be pumping out lasers. Uh, John Wolfe was the specialist in that. Now, lasers then were hard work to do because they had to be water-cooled. Did you know that? And so you had to have a big source of water and all sorts of complications and extra work and cash. So very often it got to a stage where touring wasn't actually making money. But the young musicians were idealistic about trying to get something good. Mm. over to the audience and then over in America the real uh, drivers for all of, all that sort of quality attitude was the Grateful Dead who, who had people di- design PAs to do enormous gigs and they, they would bring in army types ways of getting power around <laughs> the desert and, uh, and ways of getting staging up and uh, they invented power cans well, I don't know if that means anything to you but the way you would overrun a 110-par bulb to 240. And what they gave you was a great light that poked through a gel with very strong colour. So all these things were all in the the developing and the innovating of people who wanted to get uh, something good back to the audience. It was that sort of attitude then, but maybe it was part of the 60s culture, you know, doing the right thing for people.
0: Yeah, they wanted to, as you say, put a great show across, and it didn't really matter how much it cost as long as it was, as important. Long as it was the right show. Yeah, it, it was
1: important to them. All the musicians would be driving along trying to improve things all the time, and that's why whole productions had to start trolling around the concert halls... Because you were never going to be satisfied what was in the concert hall, and most concert halls were built to operate acoustically. Mm. So the the musicians took over, and it slipped to extremes because they would carry in PA's that were quite unsuitable for the space, and and, and, and sometimes there was hardly any room left for the punters.
0: <laughs> So in the early shows, well, in terms of lighting, was it very much sort of four Fresnel lights at the stage and, and and it was a stationary lighting show?
1: Yeah, you'd have uh, the types of Mole Richardson wind-up stands that you would, you'll would you see on film sets, or used to see on film sets. Just a robust tripod that winds up to four metres and you would put Fresnels and profiles on those. And the first time I saw it being done in a gig was... a a Who show in Birmingham that wasn't part of a tour. It was just a warm-up for them going to do uh, a, a tour in America. But they'd, they were, they were lighting, and stage left and stage right, they had maybe a couple of genius stands or something that became the genius stand. And then most of the lights that you saw were on the back bar, or they were on stands, and they were all pointing at the drum kit. So if you use profile lights to, to light across a drum kit, because of the nature of the sculpture, it's uh, very evocative. So your you show starts in a blackout, and then the lights start going up on the drum kit at the back. So you knew at that time that Keith Moon was going to be coming on. And that was the first time I saw it being... Operating on the gig circuit, and also on that gig, to give you an idea of what Townsend was like, our band was on another stage, you know, like you've got big stage down there, halfway down there was a, a stage for a support act, and it was us. And Our PA hadn't shown up, so you know, I'd seen Townsend come in to the back, and I went to find him in the dressing room said so we're really stuck here our PA's not right uh, could you be able to help out and he said oh uh, that's John Wolfe really <laughs> you know you could see he feared the production boss <laughs> and he said I'll, I'll see what I can do and they brought us their monitor system which was more than enough oh, wow. to do our gig uh, you know, it's sort of a generous attitude towards mm. uh, you know I suppose um. am Putting that up as an illustration of the attitude that would exist then. It was
0: a lot of flower power. and. uh, Jay Taylor from... I know know Jay. He told me about playing with Goldblade. Oh, right, I know Goldblade, yeah. And they were supporting the offspring. It was the height of their fame. They were number one in something like 30 countries simultaneously with their biggest hit song and they were supporting them on stage. And Jay said it was it was amazing. They, the, the drummer came out and he said, oh look, it's quite warm on stage. Here, have my fan. Let me move my drum kit out of the way for you. Here's a rug. And the guys were like, look, here's the mixing desk. You can use anything you like. Do you want to use this expensive compressor and this nice reverb? It's all yours. You You do what you want. <laughs> because they were from the punk scene where everything was very, Sort of shared, yeah, of course. And the philosophy was clear, collegiate, yeah. And Jay said, arguably, for that summer they were the biggest band in the world. And if they could do that, then he wasn't going to take any shit from some support bands on at seven o'clock. Yeah, I don't want to share my drum kit with you. Uh, Oh yeah. So he (laughs) was, he get that. If the Offspring can do it, then you can do it.
1: Yeah, that's a piece of politics, and that's going on. All the time, like Dorothy Column, we were supporting, I think with the opening show for New Order at Irvine Meadows, about 20,000, I think. And production, London production boss for them at that time was this guy who said, I've just seen the schedule, we're going to have trouble swapping kits over. Would you use Steve's kit? I said, fine. He said, go and ask Steve to see what he said. And, 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 <laughs> and I, I, I knew him and uh, I said, they want me to use your kit. He said, don't use my snare. <laughs> but sometimes musicians can be very, very precious about their instrument. Like mm. with the Rutty Column and the setup for Vin's things, once it was set, I wouldn't mm. allow any of that to move because a slight thing could have set the echo. You know, there's all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Well, it was going to cause more trouble it's worth so if we were built up we could select our space but uh, there is a lot of generosity with, with the musicians but when they get out on tour they turn into something else and Mark Smith been the worst to, Mark Smith used to turn into The Exorcist but he was good in the pub
0: I had a, a friend who did a full show and he gets a call on the intercom is there's something wrong with the, the microphone, the vocal microphone, can you go and check it? You, uh, okay, what, what's wrong? He goes, I'm just getting loads of bass drum. He goes, okay, I'll go and have a look. So he walks out the stage and, and Marky Smith's just prowling around and the, the microphone is in the bass drum, yeah. the vocal mic. So he goes, oh, well that's, that must have fallen in there. So he, he takes it out and puts it on the stand. And Marky Smith comes over to him and just taps him on the shoulder and points at him and just goes off. <laughs> And, and takes the mic out of the stand again and just puts it back in the bass drum and it's like, that's where he wants the mic to be?
1: Yeah. That's where Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Rob Gretton, who was Joy Division of New Order's manager, he would always travel with the band and, and on very big shows, he'd be so bored hanging about because they, their sound checks used to be the drum sound check, Steve goes back down, the bass sound check. So th- there's four sound checks before we even get to the whole band oh, and the going up and down. That was the way it was done. And their PA guy was somebody called Oz. Did you ever meet Ozzy? I didn't know uh, no Oz, 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 Oz PA and Ed would run it. And Oz was a great personality. would be very conscious about, you know, getting the sound right. Uh, and it'd be worth it. If he had his back to Rob, operate, doing the, uh, the outboards, Rob would always watch and see what had been EQ'd on the board and Rob would wait for his moment and then he would alter the EQs on one channel <laughs> uh, and then And, then walk, and Oz wouldn't realise that until he pushed them all up <laughs> and, and Rob did it. was doing it all right and so I'm doing it uh, and Oz didn't know and then later on he found out but uh, that sort of mischief used to go on and what it seems to me is it's getting further and further away from get the music out right you've got all this other set of <laughs> agendas going on that you could do without really
0: when when I started doing PA systems in early 2000s it was still analogue mixing desks you shared all of the equipment yeah. it was very much a, a group effort to make a show and, and it seems these days everyone will turn up with their own personal mixing desk yeah it's become a little insular and and in some ways the the bit of the camaraderie between the the crew has been lost because everyone's just fighting their own little corner yeah their own equipment
1: yeah you'll see that on big shows uh, especially with an established actor going around the world and somebody's what respond for one part of the stage everybody's trying to do the the best they can but very often they're not relating to the, the next thing but it just proves the way the industry has grown at such a pace now you're talking about starting year 2000 like 20 years ago you know you, you forget the way it's changed and um, the attitude of people and I saw it in quite early because my partner was a producer called Martin Hammett and he was a bass player and and We were fans of music and we were in a, 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 like a an association agency together with other musicians, all trying to uh, increase our booking rate. And at one gig, that might have been my gig, Martin walked out because I wouldn't let him put his bass through the PA because there was only one channel and I wanted that for the singers. <laughs> and, you know, Martin was extreme like that and he was... Uh, that passion for one aspect of the musical process Mm -hmm. and you have all that detailed passion for things in every type of modern music and then when you start reading about maybe orchestral musicians or musicians that play strings look at the detail that they apply to a performance of a particular piece of bar talk or back that you know uh, and they will be obsessive to almost a lunatic at level about how a thing is played so that uh, obsessiveness is, is mixed in with all sorts of talents mm. creating music so obviously you've got a band of six musicians on the <laughs> stage it's bound to go
0: around each with an opinion
1: <laughs> yeah and one of the most impressive guys it really s- stuck with me um Quite a few years ago, I think, Fleetwood Mac were doing Main Road. And after the gig, we went out somewhere, and I was with the monitor engineer, who I later on found was thought to be the hottest monitor engineer in the world. And I'm sat with him, he's he's from Wakefield. He's got this (laughs) thick Yorkshire accent. And I'd found out, he was so important, this guy, that when a band were making their forward one-year plan, the one of the first people that the manager had to ring was this monitor engineer, because he was always booked, and he would be booked for a year, and, that, and that's, that's why I was a flea mac and mag, because we knew him from previous gigs. And I'd noticed at this show that the singer, David Nicks, had what they call a hill M4 box as a monitor, you, you know, you remember a really big square box used for out front, and there was a lot of ticket payers in the, the first pit there that couldn't see her, because <laughs> her monitor was one of these, and it was here, wow. and he said, well, I put that there normally, I can get it suspended from the front, the front truss. So it's right above her head, and it says, "Steve has really damaged the treble in her ears with cocaine use." But you could see, he was very sympathetic and displaying empathy to getting something right for her. And, and his modus operandi was his social skills were such. He actually loved the musicians. He loved their music, and often knew more about their music than the musicians did. Mm. And when they were doing sound checks, his quality, his white-glove quality was such, he would take care of each of their needs on the stage. And they knew that he was going to get the best possible result. They, they knew it because of the way he related to them they, they and, the way, and the way he came up with solutions. He just had a very nice personality. And he could tell he enjoyed the problem solving to improve the morale of the musician, and it came across in a i don 't know maybe a half an hour one hour conversation, and I just knocked out by the fact that the most important road in the world was Monte Guy from Wakefield <laughs> displaying all the a whole pile of qualities. <laughs> understanding music, the, the the way the speakers would work, and knowing that the only way to solve Stephen Nicks' problem on this occasion was to put an M4 box down there, and no matter that there's like 200 punters not gonna see <laughs> Stephen Nicks when she was at the microphone.
0: As you say, musicians want to have people around them who they can trust to it, deliver the best that can be done. It's a
1: very unusual set of qualities because a a lot of people aren't going to be sympathetic to that. They just think it's temperament, artistic licence being made to make them uncomfortable. There was a similar situation with Charlie, who was a wigwam then. He was the monitor guy for New Order in in America, and he couldn't take it any more off Barney, because Barney doesn't have a sibilant voice, and it takes a lot to get it right for him. Mm. And Charlie just gave up, just went to Rob and said, "Uh, actually... I'm going home tomorrow. <laughs> I can't cope with this anymore. <laughs> and Charlie at that time was regarded as the best guy you could have. But sometimes it can't be right. But this guy from Wakefield <laughs> made <laughs> them <laughs> feel the it was going to be as if he couldn't get it right, it can't be done. So <sighs> they got through the gig.
0: <laughs> I came to the conclusion a couple of years ago that whenever any artist has been precious about something. It tends to be from a place of nerves, I find. Yeah. It's not that anyone is naturally They get they get neurotic and weird at a gig. Yeah, and part of the job of being the sound engineer or the stage crew or the Batman Tech is to let that person feel comfortable so that they can get through this difficult part of their day. Yeah. And be successful
1: at it. Being a, So maybe being a natural psychiatrist or yeah. psychologist.
0: So I'm off to brush up on my psychology. Thanks to Bruce for speaking with me. And please join us again in part two, where Bruce remembers his former business partner, record producer Martin Hannett, and why he eventually got out of audio. If you like this podcast, please like, review or subscribe. And if you're feeling generous, you can do all three. Thanks. A History of Life Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow, Executive Producer at Spare René, and is a Bandwidth Production.